Okay, welcome back then to Fast Ship Performance. I'm Tim Davies and I've got an essay for you today. It's only about seven minutes long, um, but actually kind of marks the culmination of about 20 years worth of flying for me. In fact, I'm not going to write essays as a pilot anymore because I've stopped flying uh, in a military capacity. I'm not going to be doing that anymore. For me, it's obviously quite a big step, but I've done it for the last 20 years and I haven't really ever had a break. And that kind of takes its toll in a cognitive and an emotional capacity. And I think I've written about that before. So for me, it's quite a great thing to step out of the cockpit and uh, let the younger guys go up there and fight the good fight, which is awesome. Let's delve into the essay now. Maybe at the end, we have a bit of a chat about some aspects of it, if there's some uh, issues there. But uh, it's called, Why Quit the Greatest Job in the World, The Curse of the Bovril Snail? Well, that's the flying done, I thought, as the jet slowly rolled to a stop. And as I moved the throttle to the closed position, I knew it would be the last time I ever flew a fighter jet. I opened the canopy and as the engine wound down and took the generator offline. My screens turned black. I could see the crowd walking out from the squadron carrying the fire extinguishers with which to spray me, just like I'd done to many of my pilots before, and yet I felt little emotion. I had a last look around the cockpit. It was a familiar and comfortable environment, but one I knew could have killed me at any moment. Like the family dog you think you know well, right up until it bites you. But I hadn't been bitten. I've flown these machines for many years and by luck, judgment and the work of some exceptional engineers, I'd brought them all back home. Nope, it all looked good. I stood up on the ejection seat and stepped outside to meet those who had come out to celebrate the end to my 20 years in military fast jet aviation. And I didn't regret a thing. My mind went back to a few months earlier when my wife and I were attempting some amateur landscaping in a house we'd just bought. That's the most stupid thing I've ever seen, she said as we stood together in the garden looking at a bottle I was holding. It was covered in mud and I'd found it lying next to a heap of bricks that hadn't been moved in years. It's a nice bottle, I said. Bovril Limited. Might be worth some money. Well, continued my wife, you'll have to get that snail out first. As we looked inside, what we saw was the epitome of stupidity, something so idiotic it was beyond humour. A snail had made its home inside the bottle, but by doing so, it had grown too big to ever leave. That snail is an idiot, said my wife ever helpfully, and with a good luck dick snail, she went back to digging up the driveway. I carried the bottle over to the garden table, leaving it there whilst I went inside to make some tea. The more I considered it, the more I thought that what the snail had done was actually quite clever. The bottle protected him from predators and gave him ample food in the form of plants, fungi and algae. But by staying in his comfort zone for too long, he had unwittingly become a permanent tenant and could now never leave. I thought little of it and as the weekend came to a close, my mind went elsewhere to the flying I was to do the next day. I could feel a sense of frustration building up in me that had become all too common over the last few years. It was something I'd flown with for a while and I'd originally put it down to demanding bosses who lacked emotional intelligence or just the chaotic life of middle management on a fast jet squadron in a military that was being repeatedly hit by budget cuts. A few years ago, I started to write about my experiences as a cathartic outlet with which to explore my frustration the hope and answer would miraculously appear. It never did. But now, as I sat drinking tea with my new friend, the Bovril Snail, 
it was obvious. I was trapped. In fact, it was worse. I was stagnating. In aerodynamics, there is a point on a wing where the approaching airflow fails to separate and neither goes above or below, but stops on the leading edge. It's called the stagnation point and creates an air of high pressure, which builds as the aircraft increases speed. The longer I flew aircraft, the more I felt I was stagnating. I was standing still, watching the world pass me by. But my decision to leave flying was a difficult one because the more you invest in something, the harder it is to walk away. It's called the sunk cost fallacy and is what keeps gamblers throwing good money after bad. Don't get me wrong, I've only ever wanted to fly. My first memory of aviation is my father buying me a cardboard cutout airport set and building me a mock-up aircraft using a ladder for wings. It was my absolute passion. But I've written about the dangers of following your passion before and, in all honesty, after doing so for the best part of two decades, it takes its toll. Here's a quote. The passion trap. The more emphasis you place on finding work you love, the more unhappy you become when you don't love every minute of the work you have. That's by Cal Newport. And it's also worth understanding that the more we are exposed to something, the more true it can feel. Think of Trump telling everyone that he was going to build a wall or Boris Johnson's promise of a £350 million per week payment from the EU. Both false. But because they were repeated at every opportunity and even written on the side of a bus, they were believed by millions. The repetition of these statements makes them familiar and develops something called cognitive ease, which is a term that's used to show how hard the brain has to work in order to understand something. Basically, hearing something a lot makes it familiar to us, so we tend to believe it. But there's a problem. This feeling can also be manufactured by the simple repetition of any statement, such as BMW's The Ultimate Driving Machine or Gillette's The Best A Man Can Get. And these can make people buy things they don't really want. But for me, there was one really dangerous one. Pilots have the best job in the world. After hearing it for so long, I believed it was true. I was trapped. Flying military fast jets is actually really hard. Not in the sense that a lapse in concentration will make your jet explode. Well, not every flyer anyway. No, hard in that there is a constant level of work to be done in order to remain competent. And a lot of it is done at home when you should be having a break. Everything about it is demanding, mentally, physically, and even socially. Even the places you have to live can be miles from anywhere. The government puts all the noisy planes far away from things that keep people sane, such as other people, towns and culture. In flying training, students have to live miles away from their families and know that to fail a trip means the spotlight will be on them. Fail another and they get a check ride, which they'll need to pass if they want to keep their job. Have a bad flight on a Monday morning and you could end your flying career by Tuesday lunchtime. Pilots all get used to living with the pressure pretty quickly and as long as you continue to fly in a dynamic environment, it never stops. But pressure is a good thing if you want to stay alive. To not feel pressure can often lead to complacency and complacency kills. Interestingly, the more successful you are, the more complacent you often become and all pilots can cite examples of accidents where this has been the case. 
In military faster aviation, there exists a contradiction that says a pilot needs a certain amount of pressure to keep them focused, but the continuation of that pressure for too long will, in all likelihood, result in some aspect of mental instability. That's why most fast jet squadrons have a three-year tour length. I'd flown for 20 continuously. Now, when I was a middle manager on my most recent squadron, I was struggling to keep the balls in the air. It was a fiercely stressful time, and in the end, I managed to commission an independent review of the squadron's working practices that allowed us to stop flying and evaluate whether what we were doing was safe. Doing so probably stopped us having an accident, and today, the squadron enjoys a calmer existence. But in recent years, like the Bovril Snell, who had enjoyed a comfortable and protected life in his little bottle, I realised that I had started to not feel the pressure anymore. I had plateaued at a level of competency where flying military fast jets just wasn't challenging me any longer. I was even at the stage where I'd asked the RAF for a desk job, but because of my experience level, they kept me flying jets part-time. So, for the last year or so, I flew jets every few months whilst working in an office 250 miles away. Even my wife had questioned whether the title of part-time jet pilot was a sensible one to have. She was right. But I was lucky because one of the greatest things a career in the military ever does for an individual is to introduce them to something called moral courage. Here's a quote. Moral courage is the conviction to do what you believe to be right, even though it might be unpopular or dangerous and the personal cost might be high. That's from something called Air Publication 1, the RAF ethos, core values and standards. Now, moral courage can be defined in many ways, but for me, the definition was obvious. If I had the option to choose a path, one that was easy and comfortable or one that was right, I should choose the one that was right. And the right thing to do was to stop flying. I was at the point where if I didn't control where I was going, something else was going to do it for me. I've flown for a very long time and I knew I was in a state of low arousal, yet also in a highly demanding flying environment. And trust me, I've buried enough of my friends to know that the two don't mix. No matter how many people told me that I had the greatest job in the world or how good at it I actually was. I couldn't go on doing it if it wasn't right. That's it, I said to my wife one morning. I'm out. And as I taxied in for my last ever flight, I thought back to the many men and women who had left before me and how I'd always said how grateful I was to them for leaving the service better than when they had first found it. Now, Go and be a legend and slay some dragons, I would say. And as I hopped down from the aircraft for the very last time, the boss came over and shook my hand with a congratulations on a successful ending to a long and distinguished career. I took my helmet off, looked him in the eye and said, thanks boss, but today is the first day of the rest of my life. And this is just the beginning. And that's the end. And I've dedicated this to the engineers and all the squadrons I've flown with, but notably 12 Bomber Squadron, 208 Reserve, and especially 4 Reserve, who without their professionalism expertise and more importantly their humour, I would 
doubtfully not be here today. I've written down here, warriors who fly don't always wear wings. If there's anything you want to ask me about this and you're even looking at a career in the military or aviation in general or anything you're doing really, and I know a lot of people have written to me already talking about how this kind of resonates with them really because I think there's something about that 20-year point where we do feel like we've stagnated. You can write me an email. That's all good. Hook me up on those Twitter feed things if you want to or, or write something in the comments to this essay and I can write back. Um, actually, it's pretty cool if you write one of those comments. I think in some way that kind of boosts the post, which is great. Um, how else do I do this? I guess I'm trying to get a bit of kind of validation somehow because obviously I think what I'm going to do when I leave the military is try and go out and kind of deliver some motivation stuff to, to people. I think that's something I could really kind of add some value to, hopefully. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I can. I don't know yet. But um, I do know a lot of people have written to me about this post and a lot of people out there are finding especially late 30s, maybe early 40s, that they could do with some kind of change and that maybe they have stagnated somewhere. Um, so if you need to write to me, by all means, do that and I'll answer and I'll write back and we can have a chat. Also, come and find me on LinkedIn if you want to. I'm trying to build some professional networks on that. If you want me to come down and speak at one of your companies, I can do that. That's something, especially early next year, I'm really trying to do. I'm also trying to build in some uh, training events so I can deliver some, uh, I deliver some stuff already, but some more interesting ones, um, which will involve, you know, people getting out of their chairs and, and maybe playing with some Lego and stuff like that. You know, that's the kind of thing that we all enjoy, isn't it? When did we stop playing? When did we, what age was it when we stopped playing? When did life get all too serious, right? When did that happen? Well, look, I really appreciate you uh, listening. Again, any questions, um, whether I go back into flying or not, I'm not too sure. That gets asked a lot. I think it's like that dove, isn't it? If you let it go and, you know, if it comes back, it was yours. And if it doesn't, then it never was. Maybe that's the thing with flying. I just need to kind of have a bit of a break for a while. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And as I said, any comments, any emails, just uh, hook me up and we'll have a chat. Tim Davies, Fast Ship Performance. 